Hey guys, welcome back to VM Nation. We are live. Thank you, LinkedIn. Thank you, YouTube. Thank you, Facebook. Guys, this is going to be another great episode. I'm your host, Richard Kaufman, also known as uh, The Comeback Coach. Um, I just wanted to say this is going to be an amazing episode. Everybody has a story and everybody's story needs to be told. And we're going to be talking about that today with my brother, Michael. But first, I want to thank our sponsors. First, the sponsor is me. Um, I want to say everything that I do, you guys know, it's all about paying it forward. It's all, all about helping veterans and first responders. So my new book just dropped. It's on sale for $10.97. It's an ebook. It goes right to your email. 22% of that goes to Project Die Hard 22. Um, and also it's, it includes a bunch of features where you can actually get swag like this um, and other and other things. You can and also join my mailing list to where you every week you'll get somebody like Mr. Michael come right into your into your email box and you'll be able to get um, information from today's top, top, top thought leaders and game changers. So definitely thank you. Thank you. Check it out. I'll leave the links at the end. And also, um, everybody says, how do you get so much energy? You know, and guess what's in this shaker cup? This. Coffee from Soldier Girl Coffee. An amazing company. We're both drinking it right now. I've been friends with Carrie um, since she started the company years ago. An amazing person. Um, changing the game and only hiring veterans. So she is doing what she says she's doing. If you love coffee, I'm, I like the original coffee. A lot of people like the vanilla with the CBD infusion. Um, a lot of people like that product. I'm a big, I just like the regular stuff because it kicks my ass. So I, guys, I like, you, what's I like that? The, I like, I like the Southern pecan, man. It's my fave, but I love it. So guys, <laughs> if you love coffee, um, as you see below, you can actually go to that link, check it out. Um, pick up a couple couple bags you're not going to be disappointed so guys like i said i want to talk about is telling your story why everybody's story needs to be told michael my brother what's going on hey man hey i also want to give a big shout out to carrie i mean i've been i've been with her since she started her her coffee her coffee company and it's i she picked me up and let me write for her and it's just been a it's been great, and I can't talk. I can't say enough enough good things about her. So, yeah, definitely, hit, hit, definitely look up her coffee, Soldier Girl Coffee. I love it. So, talk to me uh, a little bit about where you come from, um, where you're from, and what kind of little boy was Michael. Yeah, uh, so I was born and raised in Fort Worth, Texas, which everybody's kind of like become really popular now with the whole 1883 Yellowstone thing that's come out, right? And uh, I went to Pasco High School and I rode bulls through high school, worked as a baker um, in high school as well. And and I was, man, you know, I was a typical 18 year old kid in the 90s. You know, I was a kind of a hellion. You know, I, I, I worked and I had my own money and the only bills I really had to pay was gas, insurance and a pager bill. <laughs> you know? So. And so, like, well, most of my free time, I was running around Fort Worth, gallivanting with friends, you know, having bonfires by the lake. But now, you know, you said you grew up riding. Um, and yeah. something that 
as as a veteran, you know, I, I've talked to a lot of people. Uh, now I've had, I think this is almost our 400th interview. Um, a lot of people say that when you're around a horse, it calms the soul. They can act, they say that they can actually look into your soul. Yeah. Can you please talk about that a little bit? And sure. So I mean, I like, so horse, I, I worked on a lot of ranch. This is kind of a common thing in Fort Worth anyway, at least in Texas, but I worked on a lot of ranches here and there, you know, on, on during summers. And um, I think the first time I really got on a horse was probably when I was, I don't know, 13, 14, maybe I was working on a ranch and, you know, there's some, there, there's, there's a bond. You like, I rode that horse that whole summer and I, it was a, it was a great little Appaloosa, you know, spirited and just, awesome but there's definitely a connection there it's, oh it's it's almost i hate to I hate to do the comparison there but it's almost like a giant dog that you can ride you know i mean they're loyal um almost to a fault and i mean everybody talks about you know people are using four-wheelers and stuff now for ranching but if you get knocked off a four-wheeler it's not coming back for you a horse will and it's that first i guess that first bond of like somebody always having your back no matter what, you know, and yeah, there's, it's definitely soothes, soothes the soul because that horse trusts you just as much as you trust it. And it's, it's, it's a, it's, it's a relationship that's really hard to explain until you experience it. You know, I mean, you kind of get the feeling when you join the military because everybody's hand, lives is in each other's hands. Right. But it's not really the same because there's still that, that, that human error, that human fault in in being in the military whereas horse doesn't have that you know it's it's going to it's going to it's going to be by your side no matter what especially if they're really well trained so, so now during high school were you an athlete were you a, were you good <clears throat> yeah i mean kind of i i try i, I of course you know again texas football's kind of religion here right but i was too small for football and um i tried out my freshman year and i got Drilled pretty hard by a pretty good sized linebacker, and and I was like, going, you know what? This isn't for me." Now, how I went made the leap from playing football to riding bulls, and thinking that was a better alternative, I don't really know. But but uh, actually, I do know. I I ended up riding a bull on a dare, and um, I was actually wearing khakis and a white shirt and some like roper boots. And I was giving a friend of mine a bunch of crap about how he sucks at bull riding. So he threw me all his crap. So you go ride one. <laughs> and so that was it. I was hooked from that point on. So, and, uh, you know, because I love watching uh, me and my wife. We love watching professional bull riding. I love oh, yeah. it. It's something that interests me. Um, it's amazing that, you know, some people, you know, some of these bulls, people can't even last for two, three seconds. You yeah, know what I mean, so yeah. what what does the training involve being a bull rider? I'm obviously you're just not coming from home, putting on a pair of boots and jumping on a bull. No, I mean, like I said, the first time I did it, I did, but that wasn't like I mean, I didn't do I didn't even make it out of the chute, right? Like, I mean, they opened the gate, the bull went one way, and I dropped right in the middle of the chute, right? But, um, no, I mean, honestly, it's really just get like so around here, there used to be a place called uh, uh, Cowbell. And um, it's it was kind of where it had like kind of like the 
the Bulls that didn't make it into the P, the PBR and you know the uh, Pro Bull Writing uh, Association, and and so you go out there and you could you pay. I think at the time it was like fifty bucks a ride or something like that, or or twenty five bucks a ride or something. And you sign up and you get like three, you get three you get three go rounds, and just getting on the back of a bull is kind of your kind of your you start with steep you know you start with like lower ranked bulls that aren't that, that that don't pitch quite as hard and then you start then you start building up to your bigger bulls and whatnot and and i personally was always kind of like i was more afraid of the smaller bulls because they can move they're more agile and the bigger bulls they tend to be more blocky when they blocky when especially when they start turning you know so you don't get quite as dizzy but they also tend to blast out harder. I mean, I can sit here and talk about bull riding all night. But um, but yeah, I mean, basically you just got there's there's there you can also like get like 50 gallon barrels and attach um, a bunch of springs to them into trees, and you take a, a basically a baseball bat and you whack the sides of them to make places for your knees that kind of like mimic the the shoulders of the of the bull. And then you throw a um, a carp a piece of old carpet over it for your spurs to dig into, and then your friends get there and they freaking pull that baby up and down, and you try to hold on and not get thrown off and eat dirt. You know? And I'm so, sure that there's no beer involved. No, <laughs> no. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I mean when, when you when you first when you first start, like when you're actually serious, like I mean. It's it's kind of like it's kind of like anything, right? So like when, like the the first, you know, three or four hours, you know, it's all like serious. You're you're there to really try to get better, but then after about an hour or so of it, then then the then the boo, then the booze break out because <laughs> it becomes like, well, let's try this. You know, well, you know I, I always have the utmost respect for the rodeo clowns. I mean, oh, the guys or and you know and gals, you know, whoever does it, yeah, they got. Um, well, I would hate to say, but they got balls of steel. Yes, yeah. sir. Absolutely. So, hey, man, I give all the, I give, all, we call them American bullfighters, right? And um, like, I give all the props in the world to rodeo clowns. They're crazier. They're batshit crazy. I mean, excuse me, but I mean, like, they just, because, I mean, there is no safer place in the entire rodeo, rodeo arena. There is no safer place to be than on the back of that bull because you're good, right? Yeah. It's when you get on the ground that everything goes to, goes to hell. And so anyway, so in a lot of times, like, you don't, I mean, it's, it's kind of the word I've, it's happened to me several times, but like you'll get hung up a lot of times. And one of the worst places to get hung up is when, when a bull's, when a bull's spinning, the inside of that turn is called the well. And a lot of times a bull or a bull rider will get dumped off in, in the well and their hand will be hung up. And it's just a constant beat fest. You're the bull's hitting you with its head and then knocking you back to its back legs and then trampling your feet with, with the, this back legs and knocking you back forward. And it's just, you're like inside a washing machine. And um, it's, it's the rodeo clowns had to come up and try to free your hand. And man, it's, I mean, it is, it might only last a few seconds, but it's, 
it's terrifying. I mean, it's really scary. And that's where a lot of your big injuries come from is when guys get dumped off in the well. I mean, but anyway, it's <clears> – <throat> and then – so the Royal Clans had to come up there and try to free your hand and disguise and like and then and then when you do get free another bull another rodeo clown has to make the bull chase him and i mean i don't know about you but four legs are better than two and so like i mean it's a that's a race you're probably going to lose but anyway yeah they're they're pretty pretty crazy anyway like i said i mean i'll sit here and talk about rodeo all night <laughs> like it's a it's a big passion of mine crap so now my question is, um, what made you go from bull riding to joining the military? And what was your recruiting story like? Okay, so after high school, um, I after high school, I quit riding bulls. I, I became a I became a plumber. I went to work for a company called Jeep Mechanical and um, that did big industrial mechanical plumbing. Right. And steam lines, food plants, uh, all kinds of stuff. Right. And I worked for them for almost eight years. And, or I guess more like six. I worked from them from what was it? Ninety nine to about 2006 when I moved to Manhattan and worked as a plumber there. And for about a year and then came back to Texas for about six months and then went in the army at 27. Right. So um, I had. I had a, I had, a, I hate to say this. I had tried to join the, join the military twice before I actually did go in once right after high school. And my mom caught wind of it and was like, no. And I don't know if you've ever met an Italian mother. You don't really argue with them, you know? So, um, and then it was then again, right after nine 11. And this time my dad told me no. And, uh, he was like, I understand you want to go but don't go just yet because I don't want to have to bury a son and whatever else. And then finally at 27, I went in the army and didn't even tell anybody. Like I was, I was living in an apartment and I was, I was back in Texas working as a maintenance guy's apartment complex and hating life. And because I had gone from doing great big boiler rooms and, you know, food plants in Manhattan, you know, where Manhattan, I did a, I did a, boiler room for Columbia, Columbia university. And, um, I get back, I was hating life. And then a, then a television commercial for the army popped up. And I was sitting there drinking a Bacardi and Coke. I'll never forget it on my couch, drinking a Bacardi and Coke, trying to figure out what the heck I was going to do. And a freaking commercial popped up. I was like, well, there's an idea. So I picked up my, my cell phone and, um, my little Nokia brick, I think it was, or whatever, whatever was out in 2007, and called a recruiter, a grapevine, actually. It was, you know, 20 minutes away. And the next day, they showed up with a little laptop and had me take a pre-ASVAB to see how I scored. And that, and a couple months later, I was in the Army. <laughs> and, and I didn't tell anybody I was going. I just, I told people that I was moving. And... Then three weeks, that's going to be a pretty funny story. That's going to end up in my book and in volume two. All right, so hold on. I'm having a problem with my hearing. Okay. With the, uh, And I'm going to – I'll be right back. Hold on one second. Right.
Hey guys, so uh, I'm just having some problems with my audio, so I want to apologize. Um, I don't know if you guys do know that my dad is in hospice, and right now we're just trying to get flights booked and all that. So I've been getting a lot of notifications on my phone, and sometimes the notifications will uh, kick me off. So we're gonna try gonna try to get him back on. Um, like I said, guys, um, I just want to say thank you. Uh, like. Soldier Girl Coffee is keeping me going, has been keeping me going for the last couple months. Every day I wake up is when I actually have a cup. I put it in my, I'm not a big hot coffee drinker, but I love my iced coffee. So I uh, definitely, can you hear me? Yes, sir. Can you hear me? All right. I don't know what happened. Like I said, I, I got a phone call. As I was saying, um, you know, my, my dad's in hospice, so I'm trying to get air, air fly, airplane flights out. So I've been getting a lot of calls, so it must have kicked me out. So I do want to apologize. But um, so no talk to me about your, again, about your recruiting story. Yeah. So why you joined, the, which branch of the military and why you joined that branch. Right on. So, um so anyway, I, I, uh, I went to basic training without telling anybody in my family that I had gone into the military. I went in the Army. and I, I went infantry into the Army. 11 Bravo, baby. Yeah, well, I ended up becoming 11 Charlie. So whatever, the redheaded stepchild of the military, essentially. But anyway, um, so three weeks. This is going to be a story that's going to be in volume two of my book. But anyway, uh, I get to basic training, and then three weeks into it, people are going down to call their families my i was the oldest one in, in basic training i was 27 years old and which my my drill sergeant loved because he was kind of an older guy too and they actually called my nickname was father time and uh anyway so he calls me into his office everybody's downstairs making phone calls on a sunday right well my he calls me into the office and i'm standing there praying rest whatever else he goes are you are you an orf orphan? And I'm like, mm, negative, drill sergeant. And he's like, then why aren't you down calling anybody? I'm like, because nobody knows I'm here. He's like, what? So he drug he drug me downstairs, cut me in line, and made me call my mother and tell her that I was in the army. And that's when like, everybody found out that I had gone off and joined the infantry. <laughs> so, but it, yeah, it was it was pretty funny. Anyway, so. Um, I ended up joining the army, I guess, because I get my dad had been in the army. And um, again, like I saw, I was sitting on my, I was sitting on my couch and I saw an army commercial come up that right when I was trying to figure out what I was going to do in my life. And so it just kind of, everything just kind of fell together. Like God was saying, Hey man, it's time for you to go. And so, so I did. And, you know, sometimes like I didn't know that that was going to be, as as big of a life-changing event as it became but it definitely was you know and i mean i made some great friends i had some great times i mean one percent of the time in the army sucked you know i mean even one percent of the deployment sucked deployment I, I, I would think that just one percent of being at Fort Drum in the middle of the winter would, <laughs> yeah. would really suck. <laughs> yeah, that was a big wake-up call, especially for 
like especially for me because I'm from Texas, you know. And uh, so, and this is a, even this is a pretty funny story too. Like, out of the fifty some odd guys that were in my unit, my, my platoon in basic training, right? Um, I was the only one. Everybody went to either Bliss, Sill, or Hood. I was the only one that went to drum. The only person that went to drum. And I get to drum in May of 2008. And um, there was still snow under the trees. And I was freaking out. I, got, I called my mom going, this sucks. And unlike other posts, drum doesn't take you to a, a replacement, right? You get, you get pulled, you get, uh, I guess, brought in by your unit. So they dropped me off at 431. And right in front of the battalion is this great big polar bear for a mascot. And I just, man, my mom was on the phone. And I started cussing, which I never do in front of my mom. And she starts freaking out. And I'm freaking out because there's still snow under the trees in May when, you know, it's 100 degrees in Texas in May. And, yeah, it was. But I got over that real quick when cold weather training came around. So. Now, <laughs> did you deploy at all? Yeah, I went to I went to Iraq with uh with Tenth Mountain, and then I re-enlisted while in Iraq, and then um, I ended up going to Afghanistan with 101st when I when I got there. No, we're and, not going to tell any war stories or anything. No, no, no that's uh, not what I do. I'm not. Yeah, if anybody I'm, wants to hear that, you go to Jocko. Um, right. Yeah. Yeah. I've, I'm just no, here man. to. Uh, yeah. But you know, for people that, like I said, I've had over now with you honoring me with your presence. I've had over almost 400 guests. A lot of them are Navy SEALs. A lot of them are uh, Rangers. A lot of them are, you know, 10th Mountain, 101st. Mm -hmm. And no matter what rank we achieved, no matter where we went, we all have the same struggles. Right. And um, and because you went outside the wire a couple of times, um, how, how many years did you do in the military? And... So tell me a little bit about how many years you did, why you got out, and then I have an important question to ask. Okay, no problem. So um, I did six and a half years at, uh, as um, active duty, and then I went National Guard to finish up my eight, you know, because the fine print at the bottom of the contract says the military owns your butt for yeah. eight years anyway. So I wanted to burn that up in case whatever I wanted. If I was going to be out, I wanted to be done. And the, I had two options in front of me, either I re-enlisted for indefinite, you know, or, um, or I got out and man, but there, the, the writing was on the wall that Hillary Clinton was going to be the next president. And I didn't want anything to do with that. So I just said, no, nah, I think I'll be, I'll be done. And so I got out and, uh, kind of, kind of regret it, but you know what? It's a choice I made and I ran with it. Okay, so and, then I have, you know, this is the question that I ask everybody. Um, you know, one of my friends or our friend, um, Sergeant Nick, you know, Sergeant Nick Valentine mm -hmm. always says, you know, once you step off base, the military does not give a shit about you. Nope. Um, the phone stops ringing. You lose your mission. 
you lose your job because you know because we even though we're all hula hula and hardcore, we mm-hmm. get used to getting paid on the first and the fifteenth, Tricare. Yeah. So you lose your career, you lose your friends, and then you don't have a mission. And then sometimes, not all the time, but sometimes people that have been outside the wire, they come home, but they don't leave the war over there. They bring right. it home with them. So what was your transitioning story like? Well, kind of like that. I mean, I ended up getting, I was, I was married at the time. And uh, after six months of being home, we got divorced. Uh, that's another story. And that's a personal story that I'll leave, I'll leave where it lies. Mm-hmm. But, but um, yeah, I mean, you know, I guess this is the way it was for me. The first, the first 25, 30 days, of being out was just kind of, I guess it didn't really set in because it just felt like a post-appointment leave. You know, it was like in my mind, I guess I thought I was, my mind subconsciously was like, Oh no, well, we'll be, we'll be, we'll be back to the regulations and say in, in running and gunning in a few, in, in a few weeks. So it wasn't really until probably four or five. And, and on top of that, I, I jumped right into EMT school. Like, I got out and within four weeks, if even that, um, I was in EMT school going through that whole process and doing clinicals and studying and whatever else. And, and so I was still actively engaged. I was doing my clinical fire, fire departments and in um, ERs and stuff like that. So I was still kind of in that, that mission mode, you know? Um, but then there was a pretty tragic event where, I was with, I was with a fire department working with a fire department and we got called to a to a wreck and um, they pulled a, an infant out of the back seat that wasn't living and that was it for me I was like you know what I can I can handle adults meeting their end but kids I just didn't I didn't have it so I sat there and finished the class but didn't go go get my registration because I knew I didn't want to be an EMT anymore and that's when really things started going going south for a little bit I had a my wife and I got divorced and I ended up living with a brother and he set me up with a job as a surveyor paying like $10 an hour, which kind of sucked. And I was, you know, I didn't know anything about surveying. So I was low man on totem pole. And I did that for about, I guess about a year till a friend of mine from high school that I, a really good friend of mine from high school, shout out to Chris Hall, um, sat there and hooked me up with a defense contractor here in Fort Worth as a secu- as security. And I ended up working for them for about two and a half years. And, and then I, we parted way, then me and that company parted ways. And I went back to being a plumber and I realized that, you know, I, I wasn't, I wasn't 20 anymore and try and the, you know, the army puts some miles on you, you know, like, especially color carrying all those rucks and especially infantry, you know, like, I don't know. You do a lot of, you do a lot of stuff. That's not so great i mean it's great it's okay when you're young but as you get older you pay for it and so anyway but yeah it's i it's very easy to understand how people get down into a tunnel you know where where it's a quicksand you know like once you start to sink the more you try to fight it the faster you sink and eventually you just gotta like i don't know stop fighting i guess and and step back, reassess, and try to figure out how you're going to get out of this mess. You know? Yeah, because like for you, in your case, I'm thinking when you got out, you were probably 34, 
Yeah, I was right. Yeah, I was. Um, yeah. Not a spring chicken anymore. Right. And, you know, you think that the, the whole world is going to open up to you because you're a veteran. Right. And it doesn't. And man. then <laughs> you put, you know, applications in mm -hmm. and you hear crickets. Yep. Yep. Pretty much. You know, and now like I, I had Mr. Uh, or General Petraeus on the show and we were talking about, you know, for me personally, I think tap but... sucked for me yeah. personally. But we're talking about maybe, you know how like when we're getting ready to be deployed, we have a three or four month train up. Yep. They should have a three or four month train down yeah. for those soldiers that are getting ready to get out. And I think we'll be able to sell, save a lot more veterans, um, you know, due to, due to our the number 22. You know what I'm saying? If yeah, absolutely. I mean, I mean, because the, the they, they teach you how to go to war. Oh, absolutely. They don't teach you how to come home. Yeah, I mean, and the, and the thing about it is, like, I mean, they, the Army kind of does something like that called ACAP. I can't remember what the heck it stands for, but it's not very long. It's like, I mean, I think you start going through ACAP, like, you can, you can start doing ACAP, like, six months before you start getting out. And I'm like, dude, you took, I mean, you've been training me, like, in my case, you've been training me for the last six years how to be an infantryman, you know, and, and I mean, I hate to put it like this, but drop bodies and kick in doors, you know? And now you're just like six months and I'm supposed to be good to go. But then of course, as an infantry, again, as a soldier, you're like, I can, I can take on anything, but you can only take on anything because you've got the support of your entire platoon and battalion and everybody else behind you. Right. And then you get out and that freaking like, like Valentine, Nick Valentine says, like you're done, you know, like, and it's funny to me because you know, like right when it, like so I was my window to re-enlist opened up while I was still in Afghanistan. And man, I had first sergeants coming to me, like that weren't even in sergeant majors, that weren't even like my sergeant majors or, or my first sergeants, like talking about how they needed me to stay in so that I could help train the next generation, whatever else, and how freaking awesome I was. And then I get out and I like he said, crickets, nothing. You know, not even a call to see how I was doing my platoon sergeant or anything it was like life goes on you know and i get it it's the army it's always been that way but yeah man it was that that sense and that's a big part for veterans i think is that that sense of abandonment when you get out you know that for the last however many years you were in you had that that support that nco support channel you know that just had your back no matter what even they you might get scuffed up for being wrong but when they when you had to go before whoever to get your ass ringed, they're going to be standing right there next to you, you know, taking it with you, and you might end up at the tree line, <laughs> whatever else afterwards. But but at least while you're going through it, you got somebody standing next to you. But once you get out, man, it's it's all on you. It's your shoulders. Yeah, and, and also I think when uh, military personnel we get out of the military, um, you know, like in the military, we're taught. You train to standard, not right. So if I'm in an office building, you know, people get there at nine o'clock. They have their coffee. They're at the at, at the water jug talking for a half hour. Then they go check their email and then they take lunch and then they're out of there at four o'clock. And the work is not halfway done. And if you're a military personnel or even a first responder, you're like, we still got shit to do. Right. What? You know, why are you yeah. going home? 
we still got shit. To right, do. exactly. Like like mission first, right? That's what we were always, especially especially as an infantryman, right? Like you're always taught like mission first. Like, I mean, just suppress the enemy, get it done, and then go, then then take care of your personal crap, weapons, whatever else, priorities of work, right? I mean, like that was a really big deal for me too. Like, I mean, when I both when I went to I started working as a surveyor. But also when I went to work for that defense con- contract uh, as, a, as security, I mean, I took that crap serious and nobody else did. <laughs> and, like, and, and I was like, man, like, and like, I guess it's, there's a pretty funny story also that happened. Like we're so like, I get there in less than a month after I hired on to this defense country contractor, the security, the security uh, department, decided it wanted to do um uh training uh like what's what's that called um anyway basically clearing rooms and stuff right active shooter training and we're like you know you go in whatever well i've only been out of the army hell i've only been back from uh my last deployment from afghanistan not even a year and a half and so the whole clearing room stuff was very, still very fresh. In fresh me. Yeah. And so we stack I and like, so I'm the first one going through this. Like we had airsoft pistols and I'm the first one, like going through one man through the door because I've got the most experience with a four man stack, explaining to them, explaining to them, explaining to them like what they're, how they're supposed to move. Right. Fully understanding that they're not going to get it the first try. So I had to pick up all the corners and Man, like the chief who wasn't supposed to be involved at all, the security chief who wasn't supposed to be involved at all, we're coming up on door one and we're less than a foot away from it. He goes blasting through the door and with the description of who we're supposed to be after. And I'll, I'll light him up <laughs> and then shove my shoulder into him, get him out of the way of the door so we can continue on. Well, I got him in the arm. He bled and he cried about it. And from that point on, he had he was gunning for me. To, to drop me and uh, because I bruise his ego. And um, anyway, like that's us. That right there is describes every, nearly every veteran that comes out of the military and goes into whatever field. We're going to charge it 100%. And if you get in our way, you get in the way of us completing our mission, then you're going to become collateral damage. And, and we're going to push through you. And a lot of people in the corporate world don't like that because you threaten their positions. Right. And so, I mean, now, even like when I was in the military, uh, I was a, I, they always, they offered me kept on, Hey, you want to go to school? And I'm like, sure. So I started out as a 19 kilo, but then they're like, you want to go to 11 B school? And I'm like, sure. They're like, <laughs> yeah. you want to go to 19 Delta school? I'm like, Sure. But, you know, me being, you know, having my own squad, even though I was a squad leader, I always my I chose to take the position of being the last guy. I was the guy that I literally had everybody six. And and that's something I still do today. I believe in um, I believe in having everybody six. So when I say I got your six, I literally mean I have your six. And, uh, you know, and even with my family, even I've been out, I think, 12 years now. 
I'm always letting them walk ahead of me. I'm still behind, you know, I'm still searching, <laughs> you know? So I think for me, you know, like when I became an NCO, um, I took it very seriously. I lived the NCO creed. I, I always mm -hmm. put my guys, you know, ahead of, ahead of me always. And I still do. So now why did you leave the defense contractor and what did you do after that? Well, it just, I ended up getting in, I ended up getting sideways with a, with a lot of the higher ups and security and it was just time for us to part ways really. And so, um, and like, I mean, you know, I don't want to get too much into it because there were, I don't want to throw anybody under the bus necessarily, yep. you know, but, mm -hmm. um, but the thing is, I mean, like, and I, and on top of that, like, you know, for people who didn't do anything all day and in the security world, they sure did complain a lot about it. And it just drove me insane. Like our job is literally, the, our job was really to sit in a truck and drive around or sit at a post and check IDs and people would sit there and complain about it. And I'm like, dude, like this is literally the easiest job on the planet. And the only thing you have to do is show up in the right uniform at the right time and you get paid well, like, whatever and it just hearing them it just drove me insane and i was like then i went to work i went back to the plumbing field where people bust their butt and no one complained about it you know <laughs> like like they're sitting there working working their butts off free and like you know either sweating their butts off or or cold or getting rained on and they're just laughing and making jokes about it. it's almost like you know kind of like when we did out on the field and so it's just a, I just realized that I, I, I'm better suited for a certain type of camaraderie, I guess. And so, and I've always been that way. I was, I was that way before the military. Like when I, when I graduated high school and I went to Jeep mechanical, like, and that's what, <clears throat> um, that's what this book really is. Volume one of this book is actually. Now what's the name, what's the name of the book? Uh, Life's Memorable Moments. And so basically it's from high school up until I moved to Manhattan or just before the 2004, just before I moved to Manhattan to plumb there. And before I go into the army in 2000, 2000, late 2007, early 2008. And um, it's basically, you know, back then the construction world was very guys tougher than ax handles, you know, and, it was still like, especially being a 19 year old kid when I went to work there, like who with a, with a chip on his shoulder and an attitude to boot, like basically a young punk, man, they needled me like no other. And now, I got, now I got to say, you know, I'm from Jersey <laughs> and um, I live 10 minutes away from Manhattan um, I, I hung out in the city a lot. I know a lot of those in, 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 the, in those fields, um, there are a lot of people that are connected. Right. And uh, if you're a young kid with a smart mouth, I'm sure you took a lot of gruff from oh, those people. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, like as, as a 19 year old man, like, and, it, and, and basically the entire book is a bunch of funny stories of either pranks being played on me 
or basically me learning how to be a man and building character and whatever else, which are all things that set me up and made me more prepared to go into basic training, right? And to handle the stressors that they, that they place on you, right? And because it was just one constant, like, let's pick on Mikey Fest, right? And um, the stories are great. And, like, I mean, for instance, one of, one of the stories is, that like, uh, Friday Night Smurf, right? And basically, there's one, of, one of my coworkers um, played a prank on me that, that, tur- that <clears throat> basically turned me into a Smurf right before a date. And it was... I mean, looking back on it now, it's funny as hell. But boy, at the time, it sucked. I was mad. I was so, I was so, but there wasn't anything I could do because the guy who did it was a 68, 70 year old man. So, you know, I'm, I'm screwed either way. Either I kick an old man's ass or I get my ass kicked by an old man. <laughs> so, now, you know, but, you know, from what like I said, where I'm from, um, especially in the trades, um, unions are big here. Yeah, not here. <laughs> you know, not yeah. So I'm sure that must have been totally different when oh, when you go onto a, into a building and they have one guy specifically just for this job, somebody else for this job, and oh, you're like, yeah. there's eight different people getting union yep. scale for something a job that two people could do normally. You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely, man. Like, it, it, like for instance, like so. When I got to I got to Manhattan in 2006, I think it was November 2006, and I got I hired on to this plumbing company that I'll you know leave out of it and mm-hmm. um and the like they looked at my resume and like they 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 called my old company Jeep Mechanical and talked to the guys and like immediately going hey we're kind of throwing you to the wolves and they put me on this boiler room right and in over it was over on one i think it was on 175th and like right on the hudson like i walked outside to smoke a cigarette and i was looking across the hudson at jersey right and um that was a big culture shock coming from texas and look looking into another state like from across the like that that doesn't happen in texas because well it's big you know so like anyway, but so, um, and man, like, I mean, and just the way that it all worked there was just like going, it was all union. And I was like going, I have no idea like what's going on here. No one, like, I mean, I got stuck with like two helpers that I didn't need, you know, but it was also that they could charge more. Like, I don't, I didn't get it, but it was just, it was. It was what it was, and I got I, I adapted. I spent a year there, and and in New York and New Jersey, you hear the f word, and you get the finger yep, more than absolutely. any other place yep. in the world. Yep, I came I came back to Texas. Well, I I got I got slapped by my mother a lot for for my my, my language. <laughs> so even even though my mother had grown up, it like so she uh my mom is a, a little Italian woman who actually was born in Queens and grew up on Long Island, but she moved to Texas when she was 18 with her, with her family and, um, and have lived here ever since I was back. My mom was born in 41. So I've been back, back in the, you know, closest, close of 58, 59, I guess. And, and she's lived here ever since. And so even though she was kind of like, she was 
kind of used to it and kind of expected it because she'd grown up, grown up here. She'd been in Texas so long, she'd come accustomed to people not cussing in front of, especially older ladies. Yeah. And so when I did, man, it was it wasn't it didn't go over too well. <laughs> so, so what are you doing now? What are you, what, what's going on in my <laughs> world now? Okay. So I'm a, I'm officially a writer. Um, I, I do a lot of freelance writing work where I do uh, a ghost writing. Um, I do a lot of articles for uh, Google essentially that I like question answer type stuff reviews. Um, if you've, a lot of the things that I do are like off-road tires, um, off-road lifts, fly fishing rods, whatever else, fly fishing stuff, uh, scopes, weapons, systems, stuff like that. It, and I, I work for a company that comes, gets the articles, passes it off to me, and I get paid like two cents, two, two cents a word. Um, and then I do other stuff for like, for instance, I do, uh, I do articles for uh, Soldier Girl Coffee and, uh, and stuff like that. And I have a blog that I keep I, I keep up with and that's and now I'm writing a book it was all setting the groundwork to start writing books like this isn't just going to be a book I have this is going to be a two volume series that I'm doing and then after that I'm going to go into either a historical fiction or a sci-fi and either way both of them are getting done I just don't know which one's getting done first and um and then on top of that, uh, and so I'm, I'm dedicating myself to becoming an author, like a legit author. And it's something that I've wanted to, I've really wanted to do since high school. I've always wanted to be a writer and, um, I didn't know it and I didn't, you know, I, and it wasn't something that I thought I could pursue. I mean, I, I went to college after the military. I took some, I took writing and whatever else, you know, and whatnot. And even my professors told me like, Hey, you need to be, I don't know what your major is, but you need to be an English major and write books because you really got a, a knack for it. And I brain dumped it, you know, I didn't really take it seriously. And then one day I wrote a review for uh, a restaurant here in Fort Worth and it did so well at boosting their business that they tossed me a couple free meals and like 20 bucks. And I was like, Hey, maybe I can make this into a thing. And then, so I got online and started looking into freelance writing and whatever else and started putting in applications for different um, ghostwriting jobs. Finally got picked up and been doing it ever since. I mean, it's been two, I guess, I don't know, maybe a year and a half now. And, and it's, I mean, you know, like I've really got my publisher who's tactical 16, um, really got pretty big high hopes for uh, things. The books are going to do really well just because, because they're so fun and light, you know, it's not, it's the stories are written one so that you could like read. They're short, you know, that like the longest ones, like, I don't know, 8,000 words or so. And they're short and they can be written. Like it's, you can read a chapter and put it down. Right. Like, I mean, they're individual stories. And they they all are designed to make you laugh, right? Like they're they're funny stories that I mean I've told a hundred times over campfires that people have damn near spit their drink out when I as I'm telling the story. And finally, I decided to 
turn them into books, you know, and turn into turn the stories into books. And because I think the world needs to remember that it's okay to laugh and especially it's okay to laugh at yourself, which is, which is the point of, because all these stories are, are, are things that have, are true stories that have happened to me. And where I learned that like one, the, if you're going to make it in life in you better learn how to laugh at yourself. Otherwise life's going to suck. Yeah, and, definitely. You know, I mean, and like it might, it might suck. Like almost every event that sucks as, as it, while it's happening later on with a little bit of perspective, you'll laugh about it. And I mean, it, it's in like, and honestly, like, even if people like, I recommend everybody writing, even if you don't publish a book, because it's pretty therapeutic. I mean, yep. you get to like, even me writing these stories, like writing the stories out, you know, like I'm cracking up as I'm writing them because I'm remembering the stories as they happened. And, but I'm looking at it, you know, 15, 20 years removed and they're just hilarious because I'm looking at them as if they were happening to someone else. <laughs> and now like, you know, I wrote my first book. Um, it hit number one twice um, in substance abuse. But when I wrote it, it was very cathartic, but also it ripped open a lot of wounds and a lot of healing had to be done. Right. You know, now I have another book coming out. Um, we're working on it, but I'm co-authoring it with a, a young lady named CJ Ives Lopez. Yeah. And it's called too dumb to quit. And it's about yeah. resilience. So some people think, well, I don't know how to write a book. Well, there are people that actually can help you write. You can tell them, talk to them, have set up an interview, you know, talk to them a bunch of times and then they'll write the book for you. Right. Absolutely. As a matter of fact, I'm kind of I'm kind of doing the exact same thing with a friend of mine from 10th Mountain, actually, who was he was a fister assigned to our unit. And he he hit me up when he saw they had a book coming out and I'm helping him write a, a fiction, uh, futuristic fiction, fiction, because he's got a great story but he doesn't know how to write. Yeah. And so basically what's happening is that, you know, he's telling me the story. He's giving me the characters in like setting up the, the, the storyline and the plot. And, and I'm filling it in, 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 in writing it for him. And like, you know, so yeah, I mean, even if you've got a story idea, find a writer. Like, I mean, because I can work on this while I'm working on my other book and you know, like while he's coming up with storyline, whatever else, and figuring out where he wants, where the next step is, he wants the book to go. I can be working on another book. And next thing you know, I've got, I've got a collaboration piece that I got coming out and another piece coming out in the same year. And that's just, yeah. Now on this show, I've had a lot of authors. John McCaskill wrote a book called Embrace the Suck. Yeah. You know, I've had Rich Devine on The Attributes. Um, I've had, you know, a lot of people come. I've had Steve Sims um, wrote, wrote, wrote his book, Blue Fishing. But mm -hmm. now he told a funny story that, um, you know, everybody don't know Steve Sims. Google him. Check him out. He's a seven, eight, nine figure earner. Um, but he said he, he got offered a, cho a choice to write a book. And he says, OK, you know, I don't have time to write it. So I'm going to let a ghostwriter write it for me. And his wife got the copy 
and read it. And she says, you can't put this out. And he's like, <laughs> why not? She says, because it sucks. It does not <laughs> sound like you. Yeah. It does not sound like you. So like when I wrote my book, um, people that read my book and you said you're going to pick up the book today. Um, yeah. It's very easy to read. It sounds exactly like it's coming out of my mouth. So I didn't over edit it. So I think a lot of times people think that's something they have to be aware of. If somebody's going to co, you know, co-write your book or is going to, um, you know, uh, ghostwrite it. Like I just had, um, she, uh, Sharon from, she wrote, co-wrote uh, rich dad, poor dad. She was on last week. And when you write a book, it has to sound like you. Yes. You know, like for me, if we're, if we're infantry guys, mm-hmm. you know, we're not going to be saying these eight, nine syllable words. Right. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And that's, that's the thing. Like, you know, like even with this, with life, life's memorable moments, even volume one, like, you know, I was a plumber and like when I, you know, when I got into the field, like I really didn't cuss a whole lot, you know, like, especially in Texas, you know, we're, you know, we're pretty respectful when it comes to that sort of thing, you know, but when you start getting on those job sites and as I started growing, I started cussing more. And, um, but the thing about it is, is like, as a writer, I still reserve the swearing for dialogue, you know, like that's pretty much where the only place that it, it really belongs in, in, in my opinion. And, and then, but like, yeah, it's gotta sound like you, like it, it can't, like, I couldn't imagine having somebody else write life's memorable moments because they wouldn't be able to pick up how I reacted to certain things, you know, and there's a lot of, di- there's a lot of dialogue in, in life's memorable moments because I remember, because the memories are so vivid that I remember the conversations like it was yesterday. And <laughs> I mean, you could call that your, maybe it's part, partly because of, because of trauma. I don't know, <laughs> but, but it was, I mean, it was pretty epic. And so, but I, I agree with you hundred percent. If you're going to get a ghostwriter, like my buddy, uh, my buddy, uh, Russ Hernandez, he, he called me up and like this piece, like every time I get a chapter done, you know, I'm sending it to him to have him read it, to make sure it's following the way he wants it to sound because sound and flow are critical when it comes to writing a book. I mean, if it doesn't flow well, and if it doesn't sound right, then you might as well take your notebook and throw it in the trash. Okay. Now let's, let's talk about that for a minute. Um, Like I said, um, I'm just so grateful that you're taking the time to hang out with, and I just want to say thank you. Um, yeah, no problem, man. You know, like my, my book cover, um, I'm, I just got it from her and oh my God, it's amazing. Right. Uh, but you know, a lot of people think, you know, I'm going to write a book. Like I had a cousin, he wrote a book on resume writing and I mean, the content was great, mm-hmm. but the cover was like, eh. So we got the book and we actually went to uh, Barnes and Nobles and I put it on the shelf next to every other group other book. And I'm like, why would you pick that book? And he was like, right. You know, so a lot of people don't put much time or thought into their cover where if your cover doesn't pop, like right. me and you, I think we're around the same age. You might be a little bit younger. Yeah. But back when I was younger, we had record shops. Right. Yes. I sir. would pick yeah. out a record. <clears throat> just because of the, co- the photo on the cover up. Right. You know, like I picked up Molly Hatchett's album because I it just looks so cool. And right. I think a lot of people, they'll write a great book and just give an afterthought to the front cover. What are your thoughts? Right. I, I mean, I agree. But like, you know, at the same time, like, okay, so 
Life's memorable moments. The cover's just going to be life's memorable moments written in cursive on a in red on a white background, right? Because sometimes less is more. You know what I mean? Like you don't want to, in my opinion anyway, you don't want to overclutter the, the cover, right? I mean, unless like like I might do something like that with, with my sci-fi where I want to have, you know, maybe a, 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 a planet on there or something like that. But for this, because it's just, you know, my memorable moments, unless, I mean, there's, there's no way to really capture that on, on a cover. Right. And so because of that, just having sometimes less is more, sometimes more is better. It just depends on what the, what the book is and what the audience is as well, you know? And, and like, I mean, for instance, like, I mean, I've, if you're writing a thriller, a historical fiction, any type of real fiction, then yes, the cover is where you want, you want to spend a lot of, put a lot of detail into it because they're going to, because people are buying the book for that imagery, that mental imagery, right? So if you have that imagery on the cover, then it helps them with their imagination as, as they're, they're reading the book, right? Like my, one of my friends, he wrote a book, and I'm not going to mention his name because uh, I don't want to embarrass him. But he right. wrote a book, and he, he you know, because sometimes he'll split test, you know. And uh, mm -hmm. he did a, it was just a picture of a tank and on one of them. And then it had a picture of a female soldier riding the tank on the other one. And Sex the one up, with man. the female soldier yep. sold almost a thousand more copies. Of course it did. Just because sales, of sales. the visuals, you know what I mean? Yep. Yeah, sex sells, man. I mean, that's so, I don't I don't I don't care. I mean, if that offends people or not, it's true. I mean, it's you that's gonna win. I mean, that's why that's why commercials have gorgeous women selling their products because it sells. You know all right, so I mean? now I have a question to ask you because um a lot of people and like I said, I've had um Ryan Hendrickson wrote a great book, Tip of the Spear. A mm -hmm. great book. Um, but a lot of people don't realize that when you write a book. Just because you put it on Amazon <laughs> doesn't mean you're going to sell a copy. Um, right. And a lot of people don't realize how written reviews, how important they are. So talk right. to us about the work it takes after the book is written. Man, like that's pro that might be the hardest part. Like, don't get me wrong. Like, I mean, writing the book was pretty tough, at least, you know, I mean, especially the last couple of chapters. I think that's going to be, that's going to be the case with almost most books because you got to figure out how to end the book. Right. So that's going to be pretty tough, but after it's done, like my book right now is in for editing and I'm just waiting for the edits to come back so I can polish it up and get, get it out. But now my focus is building a following and the marketing process, doing as many, doing as many podcasts as I can get onto and really getting getting the word out about the book coming out so that people are anticipating the book coming out and wanting to buy it. If you don't do any groundwork, because your publisher's not going to do it all for you. You know, like, I mean, I've got a publisher. Some people do self-publish, which is fine. But, like, they're not going to do everything for you. It's not like they're going to sit there and hold your hand and walk you through it. Like, you've got to get out there and build a following however you want to do it. I'm personally using Facebook. I created a group just Life's four life's memorable moments is coming out, and I joined. Writing, I joined it by the way, just and uh, I think it's a great awesome. group. You have almost four hundred members, and yeah, very, and they're very active. So yes, I think that's great. and that's critical. You can't just you can't just 
create a group and then hope that it takes off, right? Like I'm writing articles for that group now that my book's done, at least one a week. And and it in the in the topics range from astronomy. Like I just I just put one up yesterday about the International Space Station. And because there's some pretty important news that came out about yep. it on, on the 31st. And like I saw the news, I'm going, holy crap. And I've been following the ISS since I was 18 years old. And like, so I wrote, I immediately went, I got to write an article about this. And so I sat down and did a whole bunch of research, figuring out, finding out all this, all the stuff that I could and threw it into an article in layman's terms as best I could. And so for people to read that care about that sort of thing. And, but I'm also, I also throw up coffee reviews and I do um, like short stories of like, like right now I'm doing short stories of, of stories that didn't make it into the book but are still pretty funny and um, or, but they are, they're either too short to have made it in the book or they would have taken much explaining to describe aspects. Right. And so, and, but I've got to, but you've got to stay engaged with the group, with an audience and engage other people to build that following. And the more you talk to people, the more people get to know you, the more likely they are, like if somebody leaves a comment, respond to that comment. You know, if somebody leaves a review, respond to that review. And because the more they get to know you, the more prone, the more prone they are to share your, your book and share your group and invite people to your group and say like, this guy's an awesome writer. You know, like you got to read his stuff and more people are going to read your stuff. And then the more people that read your stuff and like it, when your book comes out, they're like, I've got to see what, I got to see what these stories are about because this guy's hilarious. I mean, he's a hilarious to talk to. I can only imagine what, what his stories are like, right. Or, or whatever. And, and you've got a, another thing is like, I really want to tell people is like, you can't expect your first book to make you a millionaire. Right. I mean, like my hopes for this book is to, break even on what I've spent on publishing and whatever else and to set up and to make enough to cover the next book. That's it. I'm not really looking to make any money after taxes and everything. I don't expect to make a dime on it, not on this one, but the next book and the one after that, as my following grows, that's how you start becoming an author that does well. Well, you know, a lot of people, you know, asked me, you know, well, why did you write a book? And, you know, for me, it was to be able to tell my story, mm -hmm. help others. Uh, but it's also to leave a legacy for my, you right. know, but, you know, like somebody once told me, he said, the word author is a shortened version of authority. <laughs> so if you write a book, you are considered an authority. Like, right. like somebody asked me, well, why should I have you on my podcast? I said, because I literally wrote the book on substance abuse. <laughs> Go. You know? Yeah. And a yeah. lot of people don't realize that they, you know, books like for Gary V, Gary says, books don't make me money. Right. It's people coming to see me live. That makes me the money. But it gives him the authority. Why? To show him, you know, when Amazon, because, and I want to throw this out there. This is a little hack. On Amazon, if you guys have a book and you put it on Amazon, 
once you get 55 star reviews or 50 reviews, they start um, promoting it for you alongside other books. So in your genre. So right. make sure that when you guys get a book, you know, ask them, please, if you don't mind, leave a, you know, leave a, a written review and most likely people will do it. But if you don't ask them, they don't know. Right. You know? Right. Absolutely. So yeah, now last it, questions I have, how do we find you? How can we support your mission? How do we get your book? And can we pre-order this book or what? It will be, it will be out for pre-order and whatever else. Uh, right now, the books, we're looking to release the book in July timeframe. It hasn't come back from editing yet. So that's, you know, it's kind of like still tentative as far as like an actual solid date, but it will be open for pre-release. Yeah, absolutely. And um, as right now, people can follow, can follow me on Facebook. I have a group going that's called Life's Memorable Moments, which is the title of the book, which is, I keep it simple, stupid, right? So, um, and I am very active there. Like, when you join, I'm going to make sure everybody knows that you joined. And if you send me a message, I'm going to respond to it. You know, I mean, it might not be right away, but it'll be within a day or so, you know, if not that day. And um, and on top of that, if you like what I write and there's something that you want to know more about, ask me. I'll, I'll do an article on it. You know, no big deal. Um, you can find I got I'm on WordPress, uh, which is where all my articles are published um, because it's pretty user friend, friendly for me. And it's pretty easy to navigate. I'm not exactly a tech nerd. So like navigating computer systems is not really like my forte. Exactly. Yeah, me too. Like I just, I have a, I have a, blog, a WordPress blog. Um, right. I only have, I think, 230 followers. Yeah, um, better off. Or subscribers. <laughs> and I'm very yeah. grateful for every single one of them. Yeah. Um, and I think a lot of people, you know, they're, they worried about their subscribers how many subscribers they have, how many followers they have, instead of appreciating the ones that you do have. You know what Absolutely. Because I mean? I'd rather have, you know, 500 engaged, I call them friends. I'd rather have 500 friends that are engaged than 5 million followers and I get one comment. Right, exactly. You Absolutely. know what I mean? And, that, and that's the thing, right? So, like, I mean, I get, I have, like, I don't know, like a thousand 2000 views on some of my, on my articles and sto stories, but I only have like 50, I only have 50, 50 followers, which I, that's fine. Um, because a lot of, a lot of those views, because everything that I write that goes on WordPress gets shared to Facebook, right. To the, my Facebook group. That way I'm hitting, I'm hitting both, I'm hitting both, both sites. And it's going, now it's going to Twitter as well. And um, you can follow me on Twitter, Mike, Mike McGarry, Michael McGarry. And, um, and all my stories get, get posted there now too, in Facebook, the group and whatever, and everything else. And I have a, and you can also email me at, uh, michael.mcgarry at outlook.com. And you send me an email and you let, if, if you want to, if there's an article, if there's something you want to know more about, but you don't want to do the research yourself on it, shoot, shoot me an email or hit me up on Facebook and, I'll, I'll put it in the list of, of articles that I do and I'll write an article up on it and give you all the information that I can dig up on it. Okay. You now know, last without... question I have, and this is going to be a two part question. Go for um, it. You know, we live in a crazy world. We're still living in a COVID world. Um, mm -hmm. I, I, I interviewed one of the iron chefs yesterday and he was saying that in the last two years, we've lost over a thousand, 100,000 restaurants in the United States. Yeah. 
So we have a lot of parents that are driving for Uber, DoorDash, just trying to put food on the table. So if I ask the average person, average American to do something in seven days, they're pretty much not going to get to it. Right. But if somebody's listening to our episode right now and we ask them to take an actionable step in the next 24 hours, they're more likely to do it. So if somebody, and this is going to be like a two part question. One, if somebody is struggling with the idea of writing a book, what can they do in the next 24 hours to get some clarity? And number two, the most important thing for me anyway, if somebody is struggling with their mental health, what is something they can do in the next 24 hours to get some help so they don't eat their gun and become a statistic? Wow. Um, so to write a book, honestly, I think the for me, it was picking up a pen and paper and start writing. Don't put it off. Like, don't sit there and, sit and say, oh, no one wants to read it. Who cares? You'll read it. So start writing it. And, and you can go through it like me, like here, I think I've got, I've got Last Memorable Moments, Volume 1. I hand jam all my stuff. And I'll do two or three drafts before I ever start t- typing it. Because there's something lethargic about sitting there with a pen and paper. And you basically, the pen, the ink is your blood pouring out onto that page. And just start writing. Don't sit there and think about it and put it off. Get up, go sit down and start writing. And if if you want, if, and if you want and you like it, this is what I did. I've, I started putting, I made a blog. I started putting my stories out on WordPress to see what kind of traction it got as like a beta test, you know, and just, and just, and went for it. You can't, you can't be scared. You can't get intimidated. You've got to, you've got to kind of like, there's anxiety. There's a lot of anxiety, but if you don't start trying, you never go, you, you're, you're never going to, it's always going to be that. What if right now, as far as, as far as mental health, now that's one of those things that's kind of like you got to figure out something that it, for me, you got to figure out something that you're passionate about. And, and it's different for everybody, right? Like I I've got a lot of them. I, I like to write, I like to work out and I like to fly fish. And depending on my mood, I figure out which one I want to do. Right. But you got to find something that you're passionate about, something that you can, that whenever, and preferably something that you can do any time of the day, whether it be midnight or noon, you know, so that you can either drop and do some push ups or start writing, or you can't fly fish any time of the day, but whatever. Figure out something that you can do whenever you start feeling that makes you feel good, that you can do as soon, like, as soon, especially I suffer with anxiety, especially now that my, I got my first book coming out. Like, I mean, there's some serious anxiety going on there, but I've got a little mini, I got a workout, uh, uh, mini gym on my back patio, right? It was like squat rack, bench press rack, and some free weights. And when that anxiety starts kicking, I'll go out there and, and work it out. Right. And, 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 but that's not for everybody. That's just what I do. And so you've got to figure out something that, and the VA has got some great programs. I don't, not a big fan of the VA, 
because they suck, but they do have some great community building programs that you can get in touch with some veterans and, and really not necessarily talk about your crap necessarily, but just hang out. I think that's the big thing, right? You don't necessarily need somebody to talk to. You just need somebody, you just need to know that somebody's there and got, you know, and I, you know and I tell everybody, you know, cause you know, now me and you are friends. I'm sure mm-hmm. we're going to be lifelong friends. Right. Exactly. Uh, but I tell people, I don't, I might not have the, the words to say, but I got a really big shoulder. Right on. I got really big ears. So go. I'm willing to listen because I'd rather hear your bullshit than your eulogy. Yeah, absolutely. And that, you know what? I, I got you and I met through the Veteran Social Summit back in 2020. Yeah. And where I met uh, um, Ryan Hunt and a bunch of other vets, vets that have really boosted not only like my writing of my writing career, but my emotional standing, right? Because now I've got a, a group of veterans that right, wrong, or indifferent, they've they're on they've got my they're on my side. And whatever they can do to push me forward, they're going to, right? Yeah. And that's critical. I mean, I can't stress enough. I don't care if it's if it's veteran so, social summit, if it's you, I don't care what veteran group it is. Get involved with one so that there's a reverent warriors, whatever. Get involved with one so that you have a community that you're a part of. And that way, I mean, you're not your the worst thing for a veteran is feeling alone. Yeah. And and you you've got to get out of that that idea of you're alone because you're not. None yeah. of us are. Yeah. Now like Ryan, the, Ryan and I uh, we put together a um, a mental health summit last April called Today I Decide. I remember so if that, you go, yeah. If you guys are listening, go to your search bar, hit hashtag Today I Decide. It's a free mental health summit for uh, for veterans, first responders, and their families. And it's all free, always free. And if you guys want to definitely get in touch with somebody, and she, and she keeps it real, um, she'll tell you she's having a great day. She'll tell you, like yesterday, she was struggling with her PTSD. Um, Carrie Marie Beavers of Soldier Girl Coffee. Um, she keeps it real. And so if there's especially, especially if there's any females that are struggling with anything, she's a great resource to reach out and talk to. And I'm, I'm so grateful that she's uh, sponsoring the show. Um, like I said, guys, my book just dropped um, with a bunch of bonuses and um, 22% of it proceeds go to help veterans struggling with homelessness and um, post-traumatic stress. I'm going to send you the link. You said you might check it out. Um, so, guys, I just want to say, if you guys want to write a book, he now he sent me a copy, an early copy of some of his writings, and I literally almost pissed my pants. <laughs> That's how it was fun because I, I, I'm a big comedy guy. And for me, if I read anything, it it's like a movie being played in my head. So as I'm reading this, I'm picturing it all. And I literally almost peed myself. <laughs> so make sure you're going to get this book. It's going to be fun. It's going to be great. M- Brother, I just want to say thank you. I'm so grateful and humbled. And I'm so thankful that you're now in my inner circle. 
Awesome, guys. Thank, thank you, sir. I mean, I, I look forward to talking to you in the future, and, and and we'll get together and maybe do this again. So, Yep. All right, guys. Remember, uh, vertical momentum, the only way to go is but up.